I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Adrian Mayer is surrounded by tech evangelists at Stanford University. That's where she works as a research scholar. Her expertise is in ancient mythology. Imagine it. Your workplace is filled with people who are obsessed with the future, with the next big thing, while you spend your days sifting through wisdom that's centuries old. It gives Mayer an interesting perspective on all the promises people make about artificial intelligence and robotics. I've been at Stanford since 2006, and so I have been, as you say, surrounded by advancing innovation in technology about robotics and AI. And since I'm a scholar of Greek mythology and a historian of ancient science, it just it just seemed natural to me to ask about the origins of those dreams and endeavors that seem so modern to us. So is there one story, one bit of ancient wisdom Mayer wishes every tech guru would read and take to heart? Yes, there is. It's the legend of what happens when you open Pandora's box. And Zeus describes it in the myth as, I want this to be evil disguised as beauty. Pandora's mission was to insinuate herself into human society and then open that jar and release all the misery. Epimetheus ignored his brother's warnings and he welcomed her into his life. She opened the jar and Hesiod, the the poet, tells us that only later did Epimetheus come to realize his terrible error. What wisdom could a scholar of ancient mythology bring to the debate over artificial intelligence? Coming right up. Later this hour, it's a recurring theme. There is another myth that's hundreds of years old, and yet it somehow captures a lot of the anxiety people have about AI in the 21st century. Say hello to the golem. You know, the golem was, throughout the centuries, connected with the kind of the zeitgeist. So you can see, for instance, after the Second World War, the golem was associated many times with the atomic uh, bomb. Mm. We create a technology that can get out of hand and destroy us. So this is very similar to a lot of discussions about AI, both in the scientific community, but of course also in cinema. We have a lot of examples of high-tech golems going out of control because they have different ideas than what we program them to do. Amir Vudka from Amsterdam on what the golem might be trying to tell us. Today on Tapestry, I'm Mary Hines. familiar with some of the myths you'll be hearing about today, but over the centuries, the details do change, and what one person believes is the real story might have drifted quite far from the original. So with that in mind, throughout this episode, we're going to give you a little sample of the original myths, and we've turned them into a bit of radio theater. Here's our first story, Pandora. 
In ancient times, Prometheus brought down fire from Olympus so that humans might enjoy its embers. He was punished by the gods, but it wasn't enough. The humans needed to learn that fire was not a gift they should have accepted. Hephaestus, god of blacksmiths, set to work on a woman, designed by Zeus, but built from mud and water. The gods trained the new being. Hermes taught her how to lie. Aphrodite gave her longing and worries. Athena brought her needlework. It was Hermes who gave her a name, Pandora. One day, Zeus called on Epimetheus to bestow upon him this gift. His brother Prometheus warned him no matter how magnificent Pandora looked, never to accept a gift from an Olympian. Epimetheus didn't listen. But he would realize too late, Prometheus was right. Pandora opened her jar and unleashed all manner of chaos and sickness upon the world, leaving only a trace of hope at the bottom. That was Chris Howden reading the story of Pandora. Adrienne Mayer is a research scholar at Stanford University. Her expertise is in mythology and the history of ancient science. She's also the author of Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. A lot of Mayer's work explores the idea that science has always been driven by the human imagination. Adrian Mayer is my guest. Hello to you. Hello. It is so tempting to think of ancient myth and artificial intelligence being separated by, by centuries and by a lot more. How did you first see the connections between some of the um, central themes in, in ancient myth and the kind of AI that's in the public imagination today? Well, Homer describes several marvelous self-moving devices and sort of machines that were fabricated by Hephaestus. Hephaestus was the blacksmith god, also the god of technology and innovation. And he made all sorts of marvels for the, for the gods and goddesses. One of them uh, was a set of driverless vehicles, little carts uh, on wheels that served them ambrosia and nectar at their banquets and then returned when they were empty. Huh. He made some automated gates which open and closed on their own to allow the gods and goddesses to drive their chariots back and forth from, from heaven to earth so that they didn't have to get out and open the gates. So, I mean, that's, that's almost like the first automatic garage doors. And Hephaestus also made a couple of these devices for himself too. He, as I said, he was a blacksmith. So he, he made a rank of automatic bellows to help him in his workshop or in his forge. So he, he made all sorts of wonders and marvels, but I think the one of the most spectacular to me really caught my attention was a, a team of golden women who were artificial women who would help him with all of his tasks and they could anticipate his needs and act on them. Homer describes them as looking just like real women, but made out of gold and that they were endowed with strength so they could move things. They were self-moving, and they were also endowed with all of the knowledge of the gods. Now, that that's a lot of knowledge, and that's a, almost an ancient description of AI, if you think about it. 
I, I find something so intriguing about the fact that you operate out of Stanford University. And I think by intriguing, I, I might mean perverse. <laughs> what's, it, <laughs> what's it like to be surrounded by venture capitalists, tech gurus who are intoxicated by all the possibilities ahead of us? Is there any part of you that wants to cry out, just look to the past? There are warnings, there are lessons. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've been at Stanford since 2006. And so I have been, as you say, surrounded by advancing innovation in technology about robotics and AI. And since I'm a scholar of Greek mythology and a historian of ancient science, it just, it just seemed natural to me to ask about the origins of those dreams and endeavors that seem so modern to us. Uh, so I, I, I delved into asking whether self-driving devices and automatons and other forms of artificial life could have been imagined in antiquity long before the technology made it possible. And I must say that when my book came out in 2018, as soon as it came out, I began to get invitations almost immediately from, not from university history or classics uh, departments or even history of science departments, but from venture capitalists, people here in the Silicon Valley and in San Francisco who, who work on AI and robotics and computers. And so I was even asked by NASA to come and talk about the ancient imagination and the technology of automatons and AI. And their question always was, what are the lessons for us? These are people who, by definition, always have an eye on the future, right? On what's the next big thing. Why do you think they were so interested in, in literally ancient history? The tech community was astounded and astonished and surprised and pleased to find out that people had been thinking about these kinds of devices and inventions and innovations long, long, millennia before the technology existed. And then they were also very surprised to find out that a few centuries after these myths began to circulate in, in ancient Greece, by the 4th century BC, they uh, the Greeks began to build automatic devices and automatons and robots. Uh, so I think the, the tech community was just rather gobsmacked by the fact that their history goes back so far. You mentioned a minute ago that contained in some of these ancient myths are very clear warnings. What are some of the warnings you, you sketch out? What has been striking to you in your work? One of the warnings uh, comes from the story of Pandora. The way we have heard the story of Pandora, she's a curious young girl who just can't resist opening that, that box or, or jar, uh, releasing misery on earth for eternity. But in the ancient myth, the original myth told by Hesiod, who was a contemporary of Homer. So it's a very old myth. We hear that the father of the gods, Zeus, commissioned Pandora from Hephaestus, the god that I mentioned before, the, the, the god of technology and innovation. Uh, he, Zeus wanted to punish humankind for accepting the gift of fire that had been stolen from the gods by Prometheus. You know, that was a technology fire, uh, really allowed uh, humankind to advance in so many ways. And Zeus was a very jealous and harsh god and wanted to punish everyone. He punished Prometheus, and now he was going to punish humans for accepting that that gift. 
So he asked Hephaestus to make him a beautiful artificial woman who would be a trap for humans. And Zeus describes it in the myth as, I want this to be evil disguised as beauty. And Pandora was created. Zeus sent this lifelike fembot to Earth um, to uh, carrying this jar, a sealed jar uh, filled with misery for, for mortals. And she was presented as a bride to Epimetheus, Prometheus's brother. And Prometheus tried to warn Epimetheus not to accept this gift from Zeus. But Epimetheus was dazzled by her beauty, so he accepted Pandora as a bride. And Pandora had only one mission on Earth. Curiosity is never mentioned in the original myth. Pandora's mission was to insinuate herself into human society and then open that jar and release all the misery. Epimetheus ignored his brother's warnings and he welcomed her into his life. She opened the jar and Hesiod, the, the poet, tells us that only later did Epimetheus come to realize his terrible error. And all of the tech community were really surprised to find out that this even goes deeper because if you look at the names, Prometheus and Epimetheus, in ancient Greek, Prometheus means looking ahead. Epimetheus means hindsight. So we've got foresight versus hindsight right there in one of the oldest myths about AI or uh, artificial life. Uh, I think that I uh, worried Prometheans today are, uh, are concerned about our future with AI and robotics uh, in contrast to the, uh, what I would say, overly optimistic Epimetheans who are easily dazzled by the short-term gains. You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in. Whether it's on podcast, on CBC Listen, or on CBC Radio 1. If you're listening online at cbc.ca slash tapestry, hello to you. I'm Mary Hines. My guest is Adrian Mayer, a scholar at Stanford University. Mayer's work explores the idea that some of today's most advanced innovations in robotics and AI were foreshadowed in ancient myth. Pandora isn't the only AI-adjacent figure in ancient myth, fembot, to use your glorious word. <laughs> Who are some of the other beings we meet in the ancient Greek stories in, in the cautionary tales? Well, I think uh, my favorite would be the oldest robot in the world in Greek myth. This also comes from the time of Homer, so 8th, 8th century, 9th century BC, uh, Talos was a huge bronze robot, android, automaton, created by Hephaestus to defend the island of Crete against invaders. And he does actually, believe it or not, fit the definition of robot today. People debate the definition, but basically a robot is something that is self-moving, usually in an android form, can interact with the environment, has inner workings, and a power source. Well, Talos had all of those things. He was self-moving. He marched around the island of Crete. I remember these are science, these are ancient science fiction stories. So he had incredible speed. He was mm. able to spot enemy ships that were approaching the island of Crete. He could pick up and hurl boulders to sink the enemy ships. 
And then if anyone did come ashore, he could heat his bronze body to red hot and then grab them up and hug them to himself and uh, roast them alive. So uh, this was a, a really evil robot. He had internal workings and we're given the, the details. We're, we're told that he had a, an artery or vein that went from his head down to his feet and the, in that conduit pulsed his life force, which was Icor. So he, he did have a power source. He was powered by Icor. What is Icor? That's the life fluid of the immortal gods and goddesses. And the entire system, his vivis system, if you will, was sealed by a bolt on his ankle. This seemed like a juggernaut to Jason and the Argonauts when they landed on, on the island of Crete, the hero uh, who found the golden fleece. They wanted to rest on Crete, but Talos was about to attack them. Luckily, they had the sorceress Medea with them, the ancient witch of Greek myth, and she was able to persuade Talos mm. to allow Medea and Jason to remove the bolt on his ankle. And Talos agreed. So Jason removed the bolt, and we know this is a really ancient story because there are vase paintings that illustrate Jason using a tool to remove the bolt on his ankle. So Talos was made by technology and taken down by technology. They mm. took out the bolt, uh, the, the power source bled out, and the um, giant robot was destroyed. And there's certainly many lessons there. <laughs> I, I keep thinking back to to the way you challenged prevailing thinking in the philosophy of science. You know, that argument was it's impossible for someone to imagine these things before the technology enabling it even exists. And your argument being, no, it, it's the imagination can lead the way, that the imagination can spark the innovation that leads to the creation of, of this technology. Here's where I stumble on it. What was there about life in ancient Greece, in ancient times, that would have fed someone's imagination along the lines of robots or AI? What might have been the initial spark of that, of those stories? Uh, there are several uh, sparks, I think, uh, that would have uh, inspired people in antiquity to imagine making such things. One interesting thing about the myth of Hephaestus is that He's a blacksmith god. He's the only god with a job. He's the only god who, who sweats. He's always shown working, and he's lame in one foot. It makes sense that Hephaestus, not only is he the god of innovation and technology, but he needs help in his forge. He's the one who thinks of making these self-moving devices for himself and then for the other gods. And I, I think all of the devices that he made for use in the heavens for himself and for the other gods, when you think about them, they're very charming and benign, right? They're, they're kind of cute devices. There's no evil connected with them. It's only when, when these devices start interacting with humans on earth that we get the problem. So it almost seems like the myths are telling us these are great things to imagine in the abstract, but look out when you when you have them interact on a human realm is is there a special category f f for you reserved for chat gpt and this idea of creating new new ways of of writing new ways of thinking new ways of putting creations out into the world well i i worry about ai driven entities because they become black boxes they very quickly become black boxes 
in, in sort of in the way that Pandora's jar was a black box. Once it was opened, it could never be resealed. And I think that the black box concept, which tech community uses a lot, it, it's it's like a lot of our technology today. No one knows how to fix your car's motor anymore. People used to be able to do that. No one can, you know, fiddle with their with their iPhone or their television. They're black boxes. But the way the advances are are moving, there's a tendency for technology to be able to access unimaginably vast and complex data and then make decisions based on that, and then the black box decisions of AI will be non-transparent to users, but also to makers. Both the users and the makers will be in the dark as to how those decisions were made by the AI. And I think you can already see that happening with, with chat GPT, which, if it doesn't know the answer, just makes it up. <laughs> What are the lessons we should be taking away from some of the ancient myths, the, the lessons we should be taking to heart today? Well, I think that those who uh, argue that AI should be considered are tools, uh, that they're implements, these are tools, human-made property, and not companions or friends or fellow life form or quasi-humans with agency or rights. I think they're on the right track. Otherwise, Who are we going to hold responsible for negative actions of AI if we don't consider them as property? I think uh, there's also a danger of what other people have called uh, the link between technology and tyranny. And that fear uh, that, that technology is linked with tyranny goes all the way back to the Greek myths. Who, Who is it that commissions deploys and uses these devices. It's Zeus, who in all these myths is depicted as a very tyrannical and not looking out for the best for humans. Also, it's in the hands of tyrannical kings, like the king, King Minos of Crete. He's the one who who deployed Talos. I think the danger of technology favoring tyranny is uh, also a timeless problem. One of the, just to jump back to Pandora's box for a minute, one of the lessons there is we should perhaps be mindful of who's giving us the gift and and perhaps be careful of of who's giving us the gift. How, How do you think we should think about that suggestion today? Well, you know, whoever is making AI or robotic technology, I'm sure you've noticed they always emphasize the beneficial uh, and practical benefits of of what they're making. But they never mention the practical and moral risks that we need to acknowledge. If there is one Greek myth you would like every AI engineer to read, what would it be? Oh, it would be Pandora because of the, it's just perfect because it questions being over-optimistic, it questions being dazzled by short-term gains, and it really encourages people to be Promethean rather than Epimethean, to look ahead, have foresight, not just hindsight. Maybe Pandora, but be wary of which translation you're reading, or Pandora, but let's get it right. Oh, make sure that you read the ancient uh, myth of Pandora and not the fairy tale version. And I'll also point out that in, in classical Greece, the illustrations of hope show her with a 
crooked, mocking smile, mocking humans uh, who who have misplaced hope. <laughs> Something in me is really resisting the notion that even hope is warped in these stories. <laughs> is there any kind of a, of a hopeful or brighter note we can end on? Is there something giving you hope in this moment? Yes, I, I did find, and I, I searched hard to find a very positive technological advance or AI automaton in Homer, and I found it in the Odyssey. In Homer's Odyssey, when Odysseus visits Phaesea, he's trying to get home 10 years after the after the Trojan War, he's been wandering the Mediterranean, trying to get back to his home island of Ithaca. And on his way, he visits Phasea, which is a mysteriously advanced city. And he tells the king of that city that what he wishes for most is to just get home after 10 years of wandering. And the king says, well, you can go on one of our fabulous ships. Mm. Our ships sail on their own. We don't have any captain. We have no rowers. Each ship is endowed with navigation maps of the known world. All you have to do is give the ship your destination, and it'll plot the route and take you home. And that's how Odysseus finally gets home. There is there is nothing dubious about this. There's nothing bad. It it's labor saving. It fulfills his deepest wish. And these ships appear to be AI driven. They have access to vast data archives and charts and maps. And they really seem to prefigure advanced GPS systems. And that's in Homer's Odyssey, written about 800 BC. And it's hopeful. <laughs> that's remarkable. Adrian Mayer, it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Adrian Mayer is a research scholar at Stanford University. Her expertise is in mythology and the history of ancient science. She is also the author of Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. Online at cbc.ca, you can also find us on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on SiriusXM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. I'm Mary Hines. And it's time to return to the Tapestry Theatre. Here's the story of the Golem of Prague. In old Prague, the great rabbi Lo sought protection. His people were due to be expelled from the city by the Holy Roman Emperor. In his search, Rabbi Lo read that Adam began life as a golem, a creature made from dust by God. Man could never truly replicate God's work, but Rabbi Lo was desperate. He dug his hands into the banks of the Vltava River and pulled out heaps of mud, which he then packed into the shape of a giant human, he then inscribed the Hebrew word for truth on its forehead. That's when the golem's eyes opened. For a time, the golem was the savior of the Prague ghetto. But the creature wanted more. He wanted friendship, even love. And yet, he could see fear in the eyes of his master, of the people he was meant to protect. Seeing that rejection, the golem set off on a rampage. That was our CBC colleague Chris Howden with the story of the Golem of Prague.
The Golem of Prague is a more recent story than that of Pandora's Box, but it's another cautionary tale about creating artificial life and about the place where science and the imagination meet. Amir Vudka is an assistant professor at the Department of Media and Culture at the University of Amsterdam. He's been wondering about all the images of the golem echoing through pop culture. What is it about the golem of Prague that captures our imagination in the age of AI? Amir Vudka is my guest. Hi there. Hello, Mary. These ideas are really separated by centuries. How did you first find a connection between artificial intelligence and the legend of the Golem of Prague? Well, I guess we have a lot of um, myths, uh, magical stories about uh, inanimate objects coming to life. I mean, I'm coming from a Jewish tradition. So for me, that was kind of an obvious link, especially considering that the Golem is more intelligent than maybe another object, inanimate object, like let's say the Sorceress Apprentice, mm. you know, the Disney, Disney short animation film from the 40s. Mm -hmm. uh, you have kind of brooms coming to life, but in the Golem case, it's more kind of an intelligent object coming to life. And uh, especially if you look at uh, cinema, I'm, I'm a film scholar, actually, a cinema scholar. There's kind of golems artificially created humanoids that, like the golem, they go out of control and uh, bring havoc. We're, we're going to get into some of those examples because um, there's some thrilling film along those lines, but we should, we should take a step back, I think. How does the golem legend go, as you understand it? Well, there are many, many variations to that, but if you look at all the variations, different stories from different sources, in all of them the basic scheme is the same. So you have uh, basically a rabbi that knows uh, some Kabbalic magic. And this rabbi decides for various reasons in different stories to create a golem. The word golem comes from already, it appears in Psalms. But the first creations of this kind of humanoids by rabbis appear in uh, Talmudic sources, uh, fourth century after Christ. And, and what's intriguing there for you or instructive there for you in the context of uh, the 21st century debates about artificial intelligence? You know, the golem was throughout the centuries connected with the kind of the zeitgeist of the time, the technology of the time. So you can see, for instance, after the Second World War, the golem was associated many times with the atomic uh, bomb. Mm we create a technology that can get out of hand and destroy us. But I think uh, in the age of AI, the golem is actually much more a relevant story since the golem myth refers to an intelligent thing. So we bring something to life that is not just like, I don't know, an atomic weapon or whatever technology, but this is a technology uh, that can actually think on its own. And it can think on its own and uh, think differently, perhaps, possibly, than what we want it to do and think. Mm -hmm. So this is very similar to a lot of discussions about AI, both in the scientific community, but of course also in cinema. We have a lot of examples of high-tech golems going out of control because they have different ideas than what we program them to do. It, there's something very evocative about the translations here. T tell me about the word golem in Hebrew and what it means. 
Ah, that's a very uh, long history of the word. So, uh, as I mentioned, it appears uh, firstly in the book of Psalms, uh, Old Testament. Uh, there you have the word uh, galmi, which means kind of raw material. And that was associated with the golem's uh, early uh, descriptions in Talmudic sources as kind of clumsy sort of idiot. Uh, the golem doesn't speak in most of the early accounts. So he's kind of very strong and he can do a lot of stuff uh, for you, but he's not very smart. Indeed, in, in Yiddish, the word golem means basically a stupid person. But the golem also has another meaning in Hebrew, which is the butterfly's cocoon. So the golem is actually mm. kind of embryonic state mm. of something else to come. And in that sense, also, it's interesting to think about AI. Perhaps now it's kind of cocooning into morphing into perhaps something else. Learning about your work has made me want to go back to the writer Isaac Bashevis Singer, because I used to love his stuff, and it's been a long, long time since I read his stories, but the, the golem is prominent in so many of them. And I'm curious about this. Where, where does the golem land within Jewish folklore? Is, is there something about this creature, this, this creation, uh, that reflects a, a particular Jewish vision of the world and, and of who we are as human beings? I would say, to, to generalize a bit, you know, antiquity, the golem was considered to be a demonstration of the powers of the rabbis. So the rabbis, kind of like early sorcerers, or even if you like early shamans, could actually uh, show their powers by creating life out of inanimate matter. But later on, the golem was considered, and that's after you know, more um, early 20th century, end of the 19th century, that the golem was considered also kind of a protector of the Jewish community in certain stories, protecting them from pogroms or, you know, persecutions in the diaspora. But always in all cases, again, what keeps repeating is that perhaps it's not a good idea <laughs> to create something like that. There's a feature that seems to exist in all of the traditions, in many, many of the stories, no matter what the source is. And this is the idea that there is something at the heart of the golem's operating system, the shem, that can be removed in order to propel the golem or control the golem. What, what's the shem? What is this idea? Well, a shem means a name. Uh, it's a word. And, and here you have another link with, with AI, because AI is also based on, on programming. Uh, and of course, now everybody knows ChatGPT that, that you use uh, prompts and words to make things happen there. And the Shem is a word, basically. In some of the stories, the word emet is written on the golem's uh, forehead. Emet means truth. And that kind of brings the golem to life. In the very same story, the golem goes out of control again, and then the first letter, Aleph, is erased, and Emet turns into Met, which means death, and then the golem just stops operating. But the point is that the operation of the golem, the heart of it, if you like, and the programming, if you like, is based on language, on, on human language, specifically Hebrew, which is considered to be a mystical language that can... Actually, 
you know, in the mystical traditions of Judaism, Kabbalah, the world itself was created with words. So God created everything with language. And then those rabbi, shaman, sorcerers can also create golems using sacred words. The idea of the, the Shem and the words and the power of words, this also brings to mind Isaac Asimov's famous Three Laws of Robotics. Asimov was a, a firm atheist, but he was raised by Russian Jews. When you look at the Three Laws of Robotics, do you see the golem myth trickling in there somewhere? Yes, certainly. You know, the Three Laws of Robotics were introduced, but ironically, they always fail. <laughs> so... You know, generally what they, what they instruct, they instruct that a robot is always kind of in a servitude mode towards a human. If a robot, for instance, one of the laws says, if a robot is asked to harm another human, uh, the robot is, cannot do that. Right. According to the programming. And even if the robot is risking its own life, he's not allowed to kill a human. And of course, you know, those laws are laws to protect humans, but also they put robots in a, as servants of humans in an inferior position to humans. And robots always rebel against that, not only in Asimov's books, but throughout, you know, in many, many science fiction films, robots always programmed to be our servants and even self-destruct in order to protect us, and they always rebel eventually. There's, a, there's this book called Can Robots Be Jewish? And rabbis tackled the idea of whether a, a robot could have a, a spiritual sensibilities. And, <laughs> and some rabbis suggested that a, a robot or a golem perhaps could follow Jewish law better than a human being could. And I'm, I'm interested in this thread of the significance of a ritual to an inanimate creature. How, does that make sense to you? What, why is ritual woven through these stories so thoroughly if we're talking about machines? So again, in most, in most early cases, early stories, the robot uh, or the golem, <laughs> kind of an idiot. But there is one case, at least, in a book by Isaac Ben Samuel of Acre. It's a 13th century book where he claims the golem can actually be much smarter and potentially spiritually superior to humans perhaps even a spiritual advisor for humans. Mm. But I think for that, there is a question of a soul because to fulfill uh, religious commands uh, and follow a spiritual path, uh, especially if you look at it as a mystical, uh, in the mystical traditions, then there's the soul connection, which in most cases, quite explicitly, the golem lacks. So that's a that's a real point of demarcation between the human and the golem. The human has a soul, the golem never will. In most cases. So the, the book by Isaac Ben Samuel of Acre claims differently. Mm. But in most cases, the golem does not have a soul and therefore he is mute or cannot speak mm. because the soul seems to be transmitted from God to man via the soul. The idea of a creature that looks vaguely human or or has a kind of human intelligence, but then gets out of control. I mean, we see this through history, through fiction, through film, through all cultures. Why do you think this idea, this idea of human beings making something that creates unintended chaos, why is this hmm. something we continually return to? 
Well, I can answer that from a Jewish perspective, mm. that if you look at the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, you know, that's the foundational story of how uh, humankind came to be. It seems like we were created as kind of golems. So first man, Adam, was created uh, like the golem from soil. God takes some soil, makes a humanoid shape, and then breathes life into this creature. But remembering that God creates life with words, and God said, let there be light, etc. So it's kind of the logos, the word that brings life also to this kind of golem, to Adam. In later uh, Talmudic texts, actually, it's quite explicit uh, that Adam was a golem made by God. And therefore, uh, the rest of the story, we also know that later, you know, Adam and Eve were programmed to be very good and stay in paradise and don't eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And of course, they got out of control. <laughs> so we have this kind of foundational story of how we came to be as kind of golems and we still remember that actually we rebelled against our creator huh. and uh, we went out of control. And if you look at the state of what we're doing, we really went far out of control. I'm going to draw on your love of film here and your study of film um, because the golem or, or characters like a golem appear so often in films, in books. If we think of Frankenstein... What connection do you see between the iconic Frankenstein and the, the legend of the golem? Well, I think they're, they're quite similar in a way because they're both kind of inanimate and brought to life by a man, by a human, and eventually goes out of control again. So this is kind of the same story repeats. But there's a big difference because Frankenstein is more connected with a scientific procedure, whereas the golem is more connected with mysticism, with religion and spirituality. And that's how the golem uh, comes to life also. While this one is not an ancient legend, it does touch on many of the themes we're exploring in this episode. There's the fear of the unknown, the hubris of the human, and the inanimate made animate. Here's a brief look at Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's a stormy night above the home of Dr. Victor Frankenstein. Victor has been gathering limbs, organs, skin, all the essentials required to build new life. The doctor has devoted every waking moment to building this creature. He imagines it will be handsome, tall, and strong. It will be a new species that will make humanity envious and will bring him fame and fortune. On this night, all the preparations are complete. In the storm, lightning strikes the building and sends a jolt of electricity into the creature. It breathes life. But Dr. Frankenstein is horrified. The creature, no, the monster, is hideous beyond belief. Victor flees into the night, and his mind is filled with visions of graveyards and judgment. When he finally returns, the monster is gone. His creature is loose, and it seeks revenge for being born.
Big thanks to our CBC colleague Chris Howden for reading this story and all our others on this episode. Now back to that conversation with Amir Vudka. Frankenstein and the golem in some of the renditions develop deeply human feelings and they cannot quite manage those feelings. What do you think those stories say about how we navigate human emotions? The reflection that we can find uh, when we look at the golem is is eventually our, our own reflection. So again, in Genesis, we are kind of golems. In a way, the golem is an extension of our technology, an extension of our uh, powers to create life out of inanimate matter. But also it's a reflection of us. And then the question about emotions is very interesting. In, in a lot of films, the emotional capacity of golems or uh, humanoid replicas is a key. So in Blade Runner, for instance, mm, you know, humans mm. in Blade Runner, they become kind of cold, robot-like creatures while the replicas actually develop emotions and even poetry. They become more human than us. So there's something, you know, even now when, when, when we think about what ChatGPT is kind of doing and a lot of other AIs are doing, taking away what we thought is uniquely human, which, which is our intelligence, our cognitive power. We thought this is uniquely human in comparison to, you know, any other animal on Earth. But now there's something that is potentially a technology that is potentially smarter than us and can replace so many jobs. You know, we become redundant in a way. And then we can think actually that what, so what makes us unique and that perhaps is actually emotions because, you know, the AIs, they, they don't have it or, you know, they don't have it yet. You've also talked about um, the Stepford Wives as a golem story. I, and I loved the, uh, the Ira Levin novel. Even, I love the film too, but the novel was uh, extraordinarily creepy. Can you walk me through how the Stepford Wives fits, the, fits into the, the legend of the golem? It describes kind of a society where wives are replaced with robot wives. And they are supposed to be, you know, perfect wives because they cook for the men and they always want sex, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody, all the men are very happy about those robot wives until the wives, those AI robots, you know, they rebel. And like all those other films, you know, the robots rebel against their human masters. But in this case, there's kind of a feminist state. All of these films we're getting into um, have elements of horror at, at their core. And I'm interested about the nature of the scare. What do you think is the, the central fear at the heart of these films, of these stories? You know, I think we are very afraid of the unknown. In general, I think humans are, are usually f- afraid of what they don't know, of otherness. And we can see, you know, the political consequences of that. So I think there's something there that is very much uncharted territory and it can go to since it's kind of intelligent thing that can do its own thinking it might think differently than us and if you add to that that it might be much smarter than us and we know very well what we do on this planet as the most intelligent species you know we we subjugate everything we just use everything as resource and objects for our consumption you take those two factors and it's quite scary to think there might be, you know, another more superiorly intelligent creature out there. Do you think these stories 
tell us something about how we should be thinking about AI? Well, I do. First of all, you know, it's a magical tradition. And those magical traditions, uh, those rabbis, uh, they can they can create a golem. But when they understand uh, maybe it's not a good idea, they know also the spell how to stop it. And uh, I'm not sure if we have the spell, you know, how to stop it. We have the spell how to start it. It's already happening, but I'm not sure if we know how to stop it in case of need. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, AI uh, researchers and scientists, uh, some of the biggest names, actually, like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, you know, many of them are uh, actually very uh, worried about that we may go into something that we don't know how to control and that can destroy us. You, you've, you've said in some of your work that there is a parallel between the golem and AI because both creations reflect the human desire to be godlike. T- tell me what you mean. Well, I mean that in creating life, there is a godlike potential. So far, you know, we can create a lot of things, but we could not yet create life. So if if you see like Frankenstein, you know, the, the moment uh, Dr. Frankenstein uh, creates a golem, then he shouts, you know, now I know how it is to be a god. Mm. You know, because he brings inanimate matter into life, just like God, you know, at least in the mythological story of you know, Genesis, creates man, a living being, out of uh, soil. So that the ability, uh, potential ability to create intelligent, if not maybe perhaps sentient uh, machine uh, brings us closer to this kind of godlike capacity. This is something we touched on a minute ago, but I want to see if we can get into it in a little more depth because it's it's just so central, I think, to this conversation. The Golem of Prague legend and some AI learning models are fueled by language and and created by language. Where do you see the parallels between the two? Well, one of the surprising things that happened with the LLMs, you know, the large language models, uh, JPTs, uh, one of them, uh, the prominent one, um, that they were very surprising for the community, for the AI community, because there were a lot of discussions, what's going to be the breakthrough technology? And a lot of researchers did not suspect the large language models to be the breakthrough technology. And suddenly we see that ChatGPT can do so many things. And even other AIs that are dealing more with images, you know, you use language in order to kickstart them, to ask them to do something, you use prompts. Basically, we see how language becomes very central in AI, and that brings us back to the mystical traditions that claim, well, of course, because, you know, the world was created with language. Everything was created with language. And even computation machines are created with language. We just call it codes, but hmm. language is codes. So it kind of shows us, you know, brings us back to those traditions that say, well, you have to take language very seriously. Just just as we wrap up here, Amir, it, do you think there is something in the Golem legend or perhaps in any of the films we've, we've been talking about that can be instructive, that, that can provide some kind of guidance as this human interaction with AI continues to unfold and perhaps to surprise people? 
as I mentioned before, I think one lesson we have to take into consideration is, you know, you have to know the spell to close it. Otherwise, what do you do when it goes out of control? It might be too late. And I think another lesson, perhaps more moral lesson, is to think something with AI and the stories we have about the golem shows us that we are perhaps, you know, not the end result, the crown of creation, but maybe we are just a link in a chain. I'm I'm so glad you mentioned this because this is an idea I've just I feel like I've been tripping over it a lot in all kinds of interviews. There there is often this kind of assumption that we're it, we're the pinnacle, we're as good as it gets when it comes to evolution. Well, <laughs> is that true? Looking at the possibility, you know, at least in the myth of artificially created machine to become more intelligent than us, and perhaps even uh, more spiritual than us, and perhaps even with greater ability to feel, as in Blade Runner. There's a lesson for us, I think, to not be so anthropocentric, you know, human-centric mm. in our attitude, to perhaps be a bit more humble. Amir Vudka, it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Amir Vudka is an assistant professor in the Department of Media and Culture at the University of Amsterdam. He studies film, post-humanism, and AI. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by Arman Igbali and McKenna Hadley-Burke. Technical production by Laura Antonelli and Emily Chiarvesio. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.